morning, everyone. Good to, good to see you this morning. Good to be together. It's Palm Sunday. It's the first day of the Easter week. And the second week of our Easter series entitled Restoration. As a church, we spent the first quarter of the year in chapters 1 to 3 of Genesis, the Bible's opening book. And there we saw the goodness of God revealed in the home he made for us. But we also saw how home has broken. And our everyday experience of life is, on the one hand, much beauty and goodness, and on the other hand, much brokenness and pain. And yet our Genesis series showed us that right from the very beginning, God committed himself to our restoration. His, restore, his promise to restore that which has been broken, including you and me. So that, like fine pottery in this picture that's been broken, but then restored using gold to become something more beautiful, so might that happen to all that God has made, that he might restore all things by his good work for us. And for many of us, it's been a distressing week, as we've already heard. A week in which dear friends and loved ones have been suffering and receiving bad news. And that's hard to watch. And that's hard to make sense of. And so once again, we find profound suffering within our church community. And you don't need to look too hard to see profound suffering in the town and the city and the nation and the world that we're part of. How is faith sustained in the midst of such hardship? How do we keep going when brokenness is more vivid than beauty? What sustains faith in distress? Let me tell you, it's not sustained by looking within or drumming something up. Faith has been described as the seeing eye. An eyeball doesn't try and curve back in on itself to see itself. No, an eye looks out before it and is filled with light and so sees. It looks out upon the object. And in the same way, this morning, we are together going to look again at the object of our faith. However small your faith may feel, maybe, maybe to you right now it feels like it's absent altogether. Don't look within to try and locate it in your feelings or in your state of mind or in your circumstances. Rather, together, let us look outside of ourselves and behold this Palm Sunday, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who gives faith birth and the one who keeps it going. We're going to behold Jesus together. J. Lewis Martin quotes this truth about faith in his book. He says, Christ accomplishes faith in that he communicates himself. And then he remains active behind our faith so that the living Christ is both the one who originates it and the one who carries it along. We receive it from outside of ourselves. Through the word, Christ communicates himself in the power of the Spirit, bringing to life faith. And so today we're going to begin a whole week of beholding Christ as we head towards Easter. 
Christ born of a virgin, sinless in his life, crucified under Pontius Pilate, raised on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, from where he will come again in glory and make all things new. We're going to behold him, the Lord of restoration. Beginning now with the entry into Jerusalem on the week that led up to his death, the first Palm Sunday. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 11 in verses 1 to 11. It will come up on the screens. And as we read, I want us to ask ourselves, what does, it, what does this tell us about Jesus? What do we see as we behold him? Sometimes the word behold is translated in your Bibles as look, but that's really too weak a word. Behold is about revelation. It's about something that takes hold of you, and you take hold of it. So we're going to behold Jesus together. Let's read it. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This passage begins with Jesus and his followers approaching Jerusalem. And they've traveled from Jericho to the Mount of Olives just outside the great city. Now, Jericho was 800 foot below sea level, whereas Jerusalem is 3,000 foot above sea level. So this was not an easy journey. It's a, it's a big climb, long, hard uphill. And N.T. Wright explains that along that journey, the surroundings was really just arid land and desert, very little vegetation to set your eyes upon. And yet, along this dusty, hard journey... Jesus' disciples followed him on the way to Jerusalem, and the atmosphere was one of nervous anticipation, tension. There was a mixture of fear and, and butterflies with also expectation and anticipation. You see, they'd seen amazing things. Jesus had been healing the sick. He'd been feeding the hungry. He'd been teaching the scriptures with unrivaled wisdom, performing mind-blowing miracles and proclaiming the kingdom of God with kingly authority. Restoration was breaking through. And in fact, while passing through Jericho on their journey, Jesus had just restored the sight of a blind man. Blind Bartimaeus had called out to Jesus while he was traveling along the road saying, Son of David, have mercy upon me. And at Jesus' word, the blind man could see again. Son of David, Bartimaeus called him. That's a kingly title. See, David was Israel's great king 
who had conquered great enemies. And when David rode through cities in times of old, people used to come out and sing of the tens of thousands that David had slain, a mighty warrior king. And now one called the son of David was returning to the city of David, Jerusalem. The king was about to be coronated. Could this be the end of Israel's enemies? Freedom from Roman oppression. Freedom from the hypocritical and corrupt Jewish leaders. Maybe freedom from suffering. So much anticipation. And yet, as Adrian so brilliantly taught us last week, Jesus had plainly told his disciples what to expect when he arrived in Jerusalem. And yet, they didn't hear it. They were still dreaming of places of honor and of a classic victory. All that was going on during that long, dusty, hot journey uphill from Jericho. And then they saw it, Jerusalem, emerging from the desert. Beautiful sight, the glorious city before them. And Jesus, the son of David, was about to arrive. And many times people in Jerusalem had seen Roman kings riding into the city, bursting through the gates on strong horses in fine clothes with their weaponry in hand like Maximus from the film Gladiator. Surely God's king, the Messiah, some thought, would enter in a similar way, outdoing the Romans at their own game. After all, he was the son of David. But what do we see as Jesus enters Jerusalem? Well, we see kingly authority for sure, but in a way no one expected. Jesus was orchestrating everything. He determines the exact manner in which he will enter Jerusalem. He instructs his disciples to go to a specific location where he knew there would be a specific animal or donkey upon which no one had sat, and he gave them specific, specific instructions about what to say to kind of gain a loan of that animal. And everything happened just as they said. So imagine the excitement of the disciples. It's all, it's all happening just like he said. I'm still waiting for the day when the Lord says to me, Mike, go to Bourneville and take a right, and there is a BMW no one's ever driven. <laughs> and um, just tell them the Lord needs it and drive away. <laughs> it's, in the, it's biblical. It could happen. It's not happened yet. <laughs> what we see here is kingly authority. Jesus is in complete control. Though things didn't look the way you might expect, he's not, though, getting swept along by uncontrollable tide of events. He's not being caught up in a political storm that's going to have a messy ending. No, he is working all things together for good. He is, he is the acting agent in partnership with his heavenly Father and the empowering Holy Spirit. He has kingly authority like none other. And yet Jesus does not wield his authority to dominate and oppress like his Roman counterparts. That's not how he rides in. There's no stallion of intimidation. Uh, I've seen a few big entrances in my time. I mean, just around about a year ago, we had um, Meghan and Harry getting married. And Meghan Markle had the whole eyes of the world on her. And she... Uh, walked down the aisle of St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle to Prince Harry, followed by the longest veil known to man. It was impressive. It got your attention. I I bet that going in on a donkey didn't make the shortlist on her wedding planning. Or think about the Queen parachuting into the Olympics in 2012. I mean, (laughs) 
that was a bit weird, but still, impressive. But again, no one ever thought, let's put her on a donkey. That's just not royal. But Jesus, Jesus did. Jesus entered into the city on a donkey. Why? Why exercise his kingly authority to ensure his big entrance was on a donkey? Well, this was God's master plan. The prophets had spoken about it in the prophet Zechariah. Chapter 9, from verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Should be, behold, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It was on a wave of prophecy that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. The prophets seeing the scandal that the Holy One of God, the King of Kings, would ride in, in humility, on a donkey. Not to crush, but to save. Not to destroy, but to restore. But let's read on a little bit further. You see, Zechariah goes on to say, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Jesus was riding in as the king of Israel, not just for their sake, but for the sake of the peace of the nations, that all might find their refuge in him as prisoners of hope. Though all around there may be reasons to lose hope, Zechariah says, behold your king riding in and see that because of him you are held in a hope from which you cannot escape. He's fighting for you, even in your suffering. Jesus rides in on a donkey. But still, why a donkey? I mean, why should that be prophesied about? Well, what does a donkey do? What's a donkey's job? Well, a donkey carries the burden of people. In Jerusalem, every day, people would fetch their heavy loads and place it on a donkey, like Mary at the beginning of the Gospels, being carried along by a donkey. Or in the story of the Good Samaritan, the donkey is the one upon whom he's, he's put. Donkeys carry the burden of man. And that's exactly what Jesus had come to do. That's the kind of king he is. He'd come to carry the load of the people, the load of all people, to bring peace to the nations. Just as he had spoken to his disciples in Mark 10, verse 45, the Son of Man had come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was arriving in Jerusalem on, a beast, on the beast of, a, of burden, as the servant king. And as the crowds shouted their cheerful praise, Luke's account tells us that tears flowed from the eyes of Jesus. For by entering into the city this way, he was entering into the suffering of the people, entering into their helpless condition to carry it upon himself, 
to take up their great burden of suffering and brokenness and to take up their great weight of sin. But not their burden only, the burden of all nations, including your burden and mine, in order that in him those things that would destroy us might be themselves destroyed at the cross, annihilated there, so that in Christ there might be a new creation. CFD Mole, got to be impressive if you've got three initials before your name. CFD Mole was an Anglican scholar of the last century, and he explains that in biblical thought, sin is not simply misdeeds that we've performed. It's not simply bad things we've done or said or thought. Rather, sin is both an enslaving power that twists humanity, we'll come back to that, and sin is a heavy weight that needs to be shouldered. It's a weight that we all carry, though some are not so aware of it. Like gravity, it presses down on us all. We've all fallen from God. We carry a burden, the weight of our sense of guilt and shame and brokenness and estrangement. We are not as we ought to be. We carry that weight. But Jesus rides in on a donkey as the one who carries that weight for us and from us to nail it to the cross, and to do away with it altogether. So that in 1 Peter 2, 24, and this chapter's been quoted a lot this morning, Peter proclaims, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The weight is removed from you and placed on him and destroyed at the cross. Behold it. See, behold, the Lord of restoration. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, a mighty king, a servant king. Not aloof from our suffering, but entering into it. Not to abandon, but to save. Not to condemn, but to restore. Not to fight against us, but to fight for us. He rides to carry every heavy burden. That's how Jesus entered Jerusalem in AD 33, the first Palm Sunday. And that's how he comes to us today. To you, he comes not dominating, not brash and not self-seeking. He comes not telling you to do more, believe harder, fight stronger. He comes fighting for you, suffering with you, suffering for you, to carry you through that. Perhaps you feel the weight of your sin today. Jesus comes to you to lift that off entirely. Only he can do it. He has done it at the cross. That's why Paul says, be reconciled. The Lord is not counting the sins of the world against them anymore. In, in 1 Corinthians. Look to him. Give your weight of sin to him. Rest in him. He is eternally for you, not against you. But perhaps you feel the weight of your distress. Life is just too heavy for you. Jesus is here for you too. Here again, Zechariah's words 
They're coming to you this morning. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He carried our greatest burden all the way to the cross. He will not abandon you. Lift up your eyes, lift up your head, behold him. Your God, your savior, your servant king. You know, Jesus' kingly authority was not seen only in the manner of his entry into Jerusalem on Holy Week, though, but also in the exact timing. What was significant about the timing? What, what does his timing tell us about him? Well, Jesus rode into Jerusalem as people were arriving for the Passover festival. In John's Gospel, we're told that Jesus entered the city five days before the day of Passover, around the 10th day of the month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, which corresponds to late March or early April in our calendar, so around about now. Now, Passover is the greatest of the Jewish festivals. It's when the Jewish people remember how God stretched out his hand to save them from slavery in Egyptian, rescuing them from oppression, and saving them from death, bringing them out into freedom. At Passover, the Israelites remember the mighty acts of God performed on their behalf to set them free and bring them to himself. And at the center of this celebration is a lamb. A lamb is at the center. At the time of the first Passover, God provided a way for each Jewish household to escape the judgment that was to fall upon Egypt for their wickedness. And though the Israelites were themselves caught up in that wickedness by virtue of their enslavement by the Egyptians, they would be passed over and set free on the account of the blood of a perfect lamb slaughtered in their place. They would sacrifice the lamb and paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and then take refuge hiding under that blood. So to commemorate that saving event, the Jewish people gathered in Jerusalem every year to partake of the Passover, rejoicing in the provision of a lamb that meant freedom. The lamb, to them, represents mercy and hope and grace and life. And on the 10th day of Nisan, that is when the priests go out to select the best land they can find in readiness for the Passover celebrations. They go out searching for the best lamb, and then over the next five days, they inspect it for any spot or blemish because only a perfect lamb will do. This was the process beginning just as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. And what did the people shout out in response to Jesus' arrival? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. We've sung it this morning. Now why did the people shout that? Well, to them it was probably an expression of praise and welcome at the arrival of a man of influence. But there's so much more going on because God is in control. He's the active agent here. You see, the word Hosanna literally translated means save. Save now. That's what it means. It's a cry for salvation, a cry for rescue, a selection of the Savior. And it comes from Psalm 118. 
Whether they knew it or not, the people were putting the mouths of that psalm in the words of that psalm, mouth, into their mouth. Let's read a bit of that. Psalm 118. Can I encourage you to read this in your own time? Because it blew my mind again this week as I read that and as I read Zechariah. But from verse 25, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. These are the words put in the mouths of the people, whether they knew it or not. What do we see happening? Well, just as the priests were selecting their spotless lamb, so the people were selecting Jesus with their hosannas. He was being identified as God's lamb. And just as the priest's lamb would be inspected and then sacrificed in five days' time for the Passover, so Jesus would be inspected and put on trial and in five days be sacrificed. On the cross, for sin, once for all. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The people could hardly have known the significance of their words on that day, but Jesus knew. John the Baptist had said of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus knew what was happening. He knew that their shouts of praise meant something. He knew that in a few days' time, a very similar crowd would gather and shout out, crucify, crucify. And yet here he is, riding in, servant king. Remember, Passover time is freedom time. Jesus was coming in to bring freedom, to free us from our slavery to the power of sin. Remember, in biblical thought, sin is also an enslaving power that twists humanity. Remember, remember that. Sin, sin has that dehumanizing effect. And we see it when we look at the news and we think, how could, how could someone do that? How could that happen? And even in ourselves, we sometimes think, how could I have done that? How, I don't know what overtook me. Just as the Israelites were enslaved... In Egypt, twisted and treated as less than human, so sin as a power enslaves and dehumanizes. Only the Son of God can free us from that power. He was riding in to do that, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And five days after his ride into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus would be marched out of the city and crucified. But why crucifixion? Why not stoning? Or beheading like John the Baptist. Why, why did the Son of God submit to crucifixion? Because crucifixion was reserved as a death for slaves and those deemed to be unworthy of acceptance into the human community. It was the most shameful, dehumanizing death designed to wipe out the memory of a person. We don't know the name of any crucified man apart from Jesus. They haven't survived history. Their legacy gone. 
It's a disgrace to Jew and Gentile, a disgrace to religious and irreligious, a disgrace to churchgoer and non-churchgoer, the cross. And that is precisely why the Son of God chose to endure that death, the shameful, dehumanizing death of a slave in order to destroy in himself the shameful, dehumanizing, enslaving power of sin. Paul puts it like this. He he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How great is his love for us. He endured that for you, for you. Your Passover lamb, that you might be free. And though, as the Apostle Paul puts it, we still live in a present evil age, we know, because of the crucifixion and resurrection event, that the power of sin and death and evil has been ultimately destroyed and will one day be wiped away from all memory with no legacy left to stand on because the Son of God was crucified for you and for me. And that is what we behold this week. He has done it, and he will do it. Perhaps, though, some here today are feeling a sense of enslavement by a power too big for you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who will break every chain. Perhaps some are feeling abandoned, as if God is, has left you alone in the world. Behold Jesus today. He has stayed with us to the greatest extremity of our broken humanity. He has not left you. He never will leave you. He was abandoned that you will never be. Behold him again and cry, Hosanna, save, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord for you. We live now in the tension of present suffering and certain promise. And We call for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And at times we see that break out in miraculous power. And we say, amen, yes, Lord, do that, even as we have today. And yet we recognize that we're living in that tension of present evil age. The in-between time between the present and what is certainly to come. And we take hold of it now in the form of promise. Not by looking within to our faithful feelings but by beholding the one upon whom all our faith is based, Jesus. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, John describes God on a throne with the scroll of history in his hand, surrounded by angels, living creatures, and elders worshipping him. It's an overwhelming scene. There is almighty God with all those heavenly beings, and he's holding the scroll of the history of humanity. And the question is asked, who is worthy to take the scroll? and reveal the meaning of all history with all its trouble and suffering and evil. And no one is found worthy until the angel says, lift up your head. Behold, see the lion of Judah. 
The Lion of Judah is worthy. Now the Apostle John, who's receiving this revelation, must have thought, how impressive must the Lion of Judah look? He's worthy to hold the scroll and to read it. And yet when John looks up and sees this lion, what does he see? In Revelation 5 verse 6, it says, He saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Even in heaven, Jesus, the King of the universe, ruling supremely, the Lion of Judah remains the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not a defeated lamb, a glorious, risen, powerful, mighty, victorious, lion-like lamb. And to him the angels sing, worthy is the lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He is your God. He is your God. Behold him. He is for you, not against you. We're going to respond by singing together. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to sing a hymn that speaks of the hope that we have in our God because of the lamb, the lion-like lamb who set his face like flint to Jerusalem in order to carry your burden and break every power that would enslave and dehumanize. Why don't we stand up where you are? Maybe you want to just close your eyes. It's very possible that for some here, uh, this is speaking to you in a way that feels like it's a life-changing moment. Maybe you didn't know that was who Jesus is. Today, know it. It's for you. You might want to come and receive some prayer at the end. Maybe you're feeling like, I just feel enslaved, or I feel burdened, or I feel crushed. I need prayer. Well, we've got a prayer team. We'd love to pray for you at the end. But let's all of us use this song as a declaration of the hope we have as we behold Jesus, the Son of God.